Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with WFIU-WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. Well, 2016 elections are over. Republican Todd Young won the U.S. Senate seat. Republican Eric Holcomb is our next governor. The state and the nation elected Donald Trump as the next president of the United States. And we're going to try to spend an hour or so breaking it all down on Noon Edition here today. And we have four great guests with us in the, in the studio and on the phones. Uh, in the studio are Timothy Helwig, who, who is a professor of political science at Indiana University. Um, and also Margie Hershey, who's a frequent flyer on our show. She's also a professor at IU. <laughs> Uh, and then joining us by phone are Paul Helmke, director of the Civic Leaders Center at the School of Public and Environmental Affairs at IU, and Andrew Downs, director of the Mike Downs Center for Indiana Politics at IPFW. If you have questions or comments, give us a call at 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And you can follow us on Twitter, at Noon Edition. So I think I just want to set a little baseline here today and just go around our panel of four people to get just, you know, quick sort of top of mind comment about um, where we are today, Friday, three days after the election. Margie, let's just start with you since I'm looking at you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there were two important things that happened on Tuesday. One is that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote in the United States, and the second is that Donald Trump won the Electoral College. Um, for those people whose response then is, well, we really need to get rid of the Electoral College, let me respectfully suggest that you put your energies elsewhere. That is not going to happen. This is a partisan issue now. This is the second time in 16 years that this has happened, that the two have gone in different ways. It's favored Republicans both times. And in the current partisan climate, um, the Electoral College is going to be with us for some time. On the other hand, there are a number of things that people can do, and I don't want to take up too much time here, but one of them is um, there are a number of things that are going to be under threat in the next four years. Environmental policy is one. A variety of social policies is another. This is the time for people to put their money and their effort uh, where their mouth is and uh, spend some time volunteering at the Hoosier Hills Food Bank and at Middle Way House and at um, the Shalom Center and at various other places. And I would be glad to say more later. <laughs> okay. All right. Tim? Well, just to follow what Margie said about um, things being under threat, I think there's an institutional reason for that, both in Indiana and at the federal level, is that you've got total party control at both at both levels. And uh, uh, regardless of where your p political proclivities are, there have you know, been influential voices in Indiana media suggesting that, well, maybe we should um, – think about a Democratic governor, just not, not that there's anything wrong with the policies of the Republican governor, but just for the sake of maybe a little bit of balance. Uh, and right now we've got imbalance at both the federal and the state level, and that suggests on the one hand, there will be change. And, and that's a good thing if, if it's effective change, but the, uh, uh, the sort of the beauty of the American political system is that we tend to disperse power among different branches of government, and that dispersion, that control, that 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 inherently conservative nature of our government, conservative and little c nature is 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 now um, we're not going to see that for for a couple of years uh, until the midterms. I don't think so. It'll be really. Uh, I'll just echo what Margie said about now is the time not to sit back, but to really um, kind of um, take notice and and be vigilant about the things that are going to be coming down the the policy pipeline. All right, Paul Helmke. Well, this uh, I think folks were angry and, and folks wanted change. And uh, it's uh, one of the things we forget is how hard it is for a political party to win three elections in a, in a row. It happens very seldom. 
Uh, Al Gore wasn't able to win the Electoral College in 2000. That would have been three in a row. George Bush Sr. is one of the few that was uh, able to follow up on a two-term Republican president. So traditionally, I mean, we should have looked at this election just in the face. It's tough for any party to win three in a row. Mm -hmm. Uh, Usually, you know, eight years ago we saw a change election. People were sort of changing hope here. I think it was changing fear. Um, A lot of people are upset about the economy, upset about... uh, uh, concerned about their future um, economically, concerned probably about all the, the social change going on around them. In the last eight years, we've had a, a black president. We've seen Affordable Care Act. We've seen gay marriage come in. And for a lot of people still not really coming out of the Great Recession, uh, they're concerned about the future on a number of levels, and they didn't really like either of the parties, and they saw Trump as a change agent, and they're just hoping to, to, to mix it up. All right, and uh, Andrew Downs. I actually want to go back to something that was brought up earlier, the popular vote versus the Electoral College. In the end, anybody who's running for office knows the rules of the game for that particular race, and uh, I don't think that it was a surprise to anyone that the Electoral College was going to be the way the thing was decided. So uh, I understand why people want to see a change in it, and not just from this election, but just in general. But at the same time, those are the rules, and everybody knows the rules going into it, so your strategy should be designed to to win based on those rules. And then I'm going to jump to the polls, which immediately several people said were so awful and terrible and wrong, and how could they be so wrong? But if you actually go back and look, the polls were pretty accurate. Uh, Mm -hmm. The polls showed tight races in a number of states, uh, races that suggested that whoever won was going to win by a fairly small number of votes, and we saw that in a number of those states. But not only that, but the reason people kept saying Clinton was going to win was because the probability that she would lose all of those states was what they were really looking at, not any one individual poll anywhere. So I think those are a couple of things for us to keep in mind as well. Since when did polling become so pervasive? Why isn't it just something that the candidates commission and the candidates do? We've been been seeing polling since... uh... Uh, from, from way back, and uh, you know, the classic is, is, is the media changes, is, is the ways you get the information, things change. In 1936, Literary Digest uh, uh, polled its subscribers and said Al Landon was going to win in a landslide. You know, you, you realize after that that, does, that doesn't work, and, and now we're faced with as people move from landlines um, as they, they screen calls on their cell phones. It's getting harder and harder to get a, an accurate poll, particularly at the statewide level. The, as Andy said, the, the national polls weren't that far off. And actually, most of the state polls weren't that far off. It, there was an underestimation of, uh, of Trump's uh, strength, but not, you know, it's usually just two or percent off, which is generally in the margin of error. And you know, here too, if you, if I saw something, if you took just half a gear, if you split Gary Johnson's vote between the two candidates and gave uh, Hillary Jill Stein's votes, she would have won like five or six of these uh, swing states and won the electoral college. So, it's 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 a close selection. And we really shouldn't be surprised that when there's a wave, they all go the same way. The same sort of factors that hold true for Ohio, hold true for Pennsylvania, hold true for Michigan, hold true for Indiana, for that matter. And, uh, you know, we really shouldn't have been surprised. I think what shocked people is all they heard was that Hillary was going to win, and they didn't stop to uh, really look behind the uh, headlines that, uh, that were coming out of the media. Can I ask about uh, state polling? And maybe, uh, Andy, maybe you're the, the best person to go to, at least to start on this. But it, it seemed to me that that um, John Gregg was widely reported as being you know, in the lead for the longest time. I know here in the 9th District, at least the things that I was reading said Shelley Yoder was very close. And, it was an, and she wound up losing by 15 points. Um, what, about, what about polls around the state? The real challenge, of course, is making sure that you have a representative sample of who's actually going to show up to vote. And that's where the challenge comes in, because you're trying to talk to 400, maybe 600 or 1,000 people, and and that's supposed to be representative of everyone who's going to show up to vote. As Paul pointed out, the samples were not great in a number of states, and I think that's part of what happened here. But there's also the matter of what actually happens on Election Day. Um, It's kind of trite to say that the person who turns out their supporters is going to win, but that is kind of true. And the Democrats had relatively low turnout compared to the Republicans. The Republicans had pretty good turnout. um, And a number of the people who ended up voting for Trump were folks who perhaps under other circumstances would have been Democratic voters. 
Um, so really, I would say it's it's about uh, how you get the sample right in the polling. It is a very, very difficult year to do that. Michigan has been wrong in a number of ways, quote-unquote wrong, uh, from the polling, uh, or the polling's been wrong in Michigan, excuse me, uh, because of the, the difference in the composition of the electorate. If I could sure add something on... Oh. Go ahead, Tim. I was just going to okay. jump in on the, on the turnout issue. It, it's, I was looking at Lake County numbers, which is uh, one of the, the, the top Democratic counties in the state. Um, Hillary carried it, but she carried it 20,000 less than Obama did four years ago and almost 40,000 less than he did eight years ago. So when you get, to, again, Hillary nationwide's carrying the African-American vote, Latino vote, the young people vote, but not by the margins that uh, Obama had and not by the... Uh, increases that they were hoping were, were coming. The other thing is that when when you see a wave coming, I mean, when a wave is coming, it sweeps all those other offices. Uh, uh, Trump carried Indiana by 20 points. Four years ago, Romney carried it by only 10 points. I don't think anybody saw him doubling the percent from uh, four years ago that Romney had. Mm-hmm. Tim? Yeah, um, turnout's a huge question, but to circle back to what Bob was saying about the polls, um, I think the one thing is the sampling is bad, uh, and despite technology and the increased frequency, I think the sampling is getting worse because of the cell phone issue and things like that. But also, we can think about, um, we really need to pay attention about when the polls were done. Look at the races where we have frequent polls for the presidential election. We always see a tightening of the polls towards the election day, Um, and you know the last couple weeks really matter. Um, We don't have those kind of high-frequency polls for uh, the state-level races, especially for the congressional races. So even though, like in the Yoder-Hollingsworth race, there were some polls, and the reputable polls, I think, had them basically neck and neck at some point. I think those were too far out to get a really good sense. And you, then you add to that the turnout issue, which can't be distinguished. But I think, I think the timing of the polls is really critical uh, in this election, in close elections like this as well. We'll see a lot of volatility. And um, so that, I think I'll just add that on, too. We're uh, talking about the election today on Noon Edition. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call at 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348 from outside of the calling area. Uh, you can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We were just sort of calculating from some of the numbers on our own website, and found that more people in Indiana, for example, voted in the Senate race than they did in the presidential race. So how common is something like like that? I guess I'm just wondering where you don't you don't even vote for the top thing on the ticket. Yeah, it's a, it's the reverse of what we usually find. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, the what we usually find is called roll off, which is people voting for the top of the ticket and then not voting for the offices further down. Um, this had to do a lot with the fact that the two presidential candidates uh, had the highest unfavorable ratings of any presidential candidates in American history. There were a lot of people who couldn't stomach Mr. Trump and um, who were under the impression that Secretary Clinton was somehow the most corrupt um, political candidate in American history, which is kind of an interesting thought, um, and as a result, just skipped the presidential race. So it seems like when you're looking at a race like the Senate, from what we saw, that like, that really benefited the the Senate race um, and Todd Young winning that. But it seems like the reverse might be true, too, that if people showed up to vote in the Senate race, went ahead and checked a box for president. Am I reading too much into this? I think you're reading too much into it. Okay. <laughs> One of the things I noticed, I looked at the Monroe County results, and it's sort of interesting. It's like John Gregg... Uh, carries Monroe County 36,000 to 20,000. Uh, Shelley Yoder carries Monroe County 36,000 to 20,000. Uh, Hillary carries the Monroe County 34,000 to, to uh, 20,000. There's a 2,000 vote drop-off, but there's 2,000 votes for Gary Johnson. And so, again, I think it's, you know, it's people didn't like the candidates, but a lot of them went to the third-party candidate. And, yes, we have third-party candidates in the uh, in the Senate races and the governor's races, but they don't have the name ID. And actually, I think they did pick up a few votes, but they didn't have the name ID uh, and you didn't have the disgust level that people had at the, at the presidential level. Mm-hmm. I want to say one thing real quick, too, about the two most corrupt in, uh, candidates in history or the perception. I got thinking that this election night reminded me of the last election night I spent in Bloomington, which was 1968. And in 1968, I'm, I'm curious what the numbers were 
for disgust factor then because a lot of Democrats didn't like Hubert Humphrey. Um, he wasn't Gene McCarthy. He wasn't Bobby Kennedy. Uh, he wasn't George McGovern. You know, he was too tied to the war, and they were upset. And a lot of people didn't like Richard Nixon. He was too much of the anti-communist, anti-hippie, and they were afraid that what was going to happen. And they, of course, didn't like George Wallace. He was a racist. And, you know, so that was election night where there was one of these things where I think folks kept saying, is there any way this is going to get uh, deadlocked and sent to the House of Representatives where, where a Democrat can win? And that didn't happen, and a lot of people were afraid, I mean, like they are now, what's going to happen when Tricky Dick's back in office? So we, we've seen things like this before. We've had candidates that people didn't like. We've had people um, uh, concerned about what's going to happen next. In 1968, I don't think people expected Humphrey to win, so there wasn't the shock factor. But it's we've gone through things like this before. Let me, let me make a suggestion of a way to understand these election results that has um, been very prominent in my mind in the last few weeks. I think the bottom line here is that over the course of the last 50 or 60 years, we have seen stunning social demographic change in the United States. 50 or 60 years ago, uh, African Americans in southern states were registered at a rate of about 10% because of laws that kept them from registering. Now it's 70 to 80% registration rate. Women could be legally discriminated against in the workplace 50 or 60 years ago. Uh, that's less likely now. The percentage of women in the workforce is way, way up. There's been a marked decline in the number, the percentage of churchgoers in the United States. As we all know, in 2014, that was the first year in which the number of babies born who are people of color exceeded the number of white babies born for the first time in American history. Those social demographic changes are not going to be stopped by Mr. Trump or by anybody else. Um, in about 30 or 40 years, if not sooner, we're going to be a majority-minority nation. That's a lot for people to accept. That's a lot of change. And uh, the people who represented the, the opposition to that change have not gone away. Uh, the way it used to be wasn't that way by happenstance. It was that way because people wanted it that way. Those people haven't disappeared. Um, I think this is probably one of the last elections in which this is going to happen because the social demographic changes over time are simply going to overtake us after a while. But whenever you have major change, you're going to have major pushback to that change. And I think that's a lot of what we were seeing on Tuesday. Um, I want to ask about – I think I want to go to Andrew Downs first because I want to go back to the Senate race and talk about you know, just what happened to Evan Bayh. I mean, Evan Bayh got into the race late. It was sort of a uh, – I think I sent an editorial, an inelegant way for him to enter the race. But he came in with a 12-point lead, and he lost by 10 points, yeah. right? So, Andy, what happened? I think there are a few things. First of all, uh, he did not take into consideration the effects of outside money. Uh, between the two uh, candidates, they will, I think by the time we're done, we'll see that they raised and spent somewhere around $20 million. But they were actually outspent by the outside money. So that financial advantage he had early on disappeared very quickly. That was That's the first thing. Secondly, I think in many respects he was kind of rusty. He hadn't campaigned in 12 years. Uh, campaigns are a little different today than they were 12 years ago. Uh, and it is something that you, you need to stay in shape to do, you know, stay in practice to do. And I, so I think he's a little rusty there. And then there are the issues that just didn't go away, whether it's his residence or his mm -hmm. occupation after he left the Senate. They just kept hanging around. And, and people have said, well, Dan Coates had these same issues. How come they didn't stick to him? And I think the answer is that Dan Coates ran in a primary, and Dan Coates sat down with a lot of folks in the media throughout the state and went uh, in, into great depth about what he did and for whom he did it, and Evan Bayh never really did that. Mm -hmm. Paul, any uh, any thoughts from you? Yeah, I, I think Andy hit most of the points I've been saying, too. He's, you know, it, it's the... Um, there's been a buy on, on, on the statewide ballot something like uh, 10 times in my lifetime, but 
that this is the longest stretch that there hasn't been a buy on the ballot between 04 and and, uh, and 16. And I, I know a lot of people that have moved into the state since then who know nothing about Evan Bayh, a lot of the young people. You know, he's, he's a name that maybe their parents talk about. Um, he, you know, he it, it was a long time away, and uh, he was rusty. And uh, the residency issues, uh, you know, he made a few unforced errors, not knowing what the address was, uh, supposedly, and, uh, and not, not having contacts with the neighbors. And, you know, he, he, it was the drip, drip, drip factor, you know, sort of that even when he had the residency stay in hotels when he was here and then the job hunting during his last year in office, it, uh, it uh, I, I'd always thought since he kept his $10 million, $9, $10 million in the account that maybe he was thinking about coming back, but the way he left uh, – uh, he, it, it, apparently he wasn't thinking about coming back or he would have done it differently. It's, uh, and uh, not, not running in the primary uh, made, you know, shown if he'd run in the primary, he could have gotten on his sea legs back a little bit, answered these questions, uh, basically said, look, I've, I've already explained this to people. But coming in in, uh, in July, that was a little late to, to take care of these things. Well, and I think there's a legitimacy question here as well. Um, I think that uh, when you have the party essentially replace a candidate who has been selected in a primary, you're setting a dangerous precedent for a small-D democratic system. Um, it's uh, certainly not the case that um, it just happened that former uh, Representative Hill just decided to drop out at the time that he did. And although I don't want to impugn the motives of anybody, I think this is just a, a, a practice that we should hope will not continue. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Todd Young as a candidate, though, because he, he did very well with uh, in the Republican primary. He came sort of. I mean, Todd is. He's been in the in the, the House for what six years now, mm-hmm. which isn't a particularly long time to be jumping to senator. Um, Paul, what about his? Uh, it's, well, it's. It, I mean, Dan Quayle was only in the House four years before uh, he beat okay. five. So it's uh, usually you jump quickly. Uh, what I think is interesting is if you looked at the ads, you would have thought that Todd Young was uh, was the outsider and that Evan Bayh was the person in office. It was sort of throw the rascals out. Um, it's time for a change, whereas Evan has been out of office six years and Todd's been in those six years. You know, but, it, but he was successfully uh, painted himself as the, as the outsider on this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about joining a race late, I think that's a natural segue into Eric Holcomb. Mm-hmm. That, to me, was a big surprise because he got such he got into the game so late. Um, I guess I'm, I, how how was he able to overcome sort of against these odds and build a name for himself, someone who never held an elected office? Well, that's I was going to start to say if uh, the Marjorie's concern about the, the the democratic process. I mean, here's somebody that at the start of the year was running for senate, uh, never been elected anything, and then all of a sudden somehow the lieutenant governor resigned. He steps in as lieutenant governor, and then the governor's elevated to VP nominee, and he gets the governor's nod. Um, without being in a primary for any of these slots. But it's, uh, I, I think what it is, I don't think he really ever established who he was, but it's folks voted generic Republican. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's, uh, that's what happened. Didn't you feel like he, would, in, the, in the primary, didn't you feel like he, he sort of aligned himself with Mitch Daniels rather than Mike Pence? Yeah. Or in the, not in the, in well, the campaign, was, I mean, in he, the campaign. Oh, yeah, that was interesting that he never mentioned Pence, but it's, uh, you know, uh, again, he, you know, supposedly only got the the, the nod from the state committee uh, by a, a vote or so over Susan Brooks. A lot of folks thought would be, uh, you know, somebody who was more of a change agent. But uh, uh, again, this was this was, you know, this was a Trump change, not uh, not a statewide type thing. So well, I add one more part to this, though. I think that the Greg campaign did not take advantage of that window of opportunity to define. Uh, Eric Holcomb for the people who live in Indiana. I think they took too much time trying to define him and basically allowed himself or allowed Holcomb to get his campaign up and running and work through the kinks. And and so I think the Greg campaign deserves some of the, the credit, I guess you could say. What can we learn just from his transition team in terms of the kind of governor he might he might be? I think he'll be in the mold. Uh, I mean, he's going to try to mold himself after some combination of Pence and, and, and Daniels. It's, I mean, he's bringing back some of the folks from the Pence administration, I mean, from the Daniels administration, and, uh, you know, he knows all these people. He's, he's been, you know, part of the behind-the-scenes crew, both with Pence and Daniels and Coates for a number of years. So you'll, you'll see some of the, the, the same people coming back in, and, you know, maybe I, 
you know, I'm sure there's some new younger people that he wants to to get involved too. It, uh, it there won't be that much change, I don't think. All right, we're going to have to take a short break, and uh, we have one phone call when we get back. So, uh, Stan, stay uh, stay patient with us. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire, the uh, News Bureau Chief of WFIU and WTIU. And we have four guests on the studio, or with us, not all in the studio. Um, Paul Helmke and and Andrew Downs are joining us by phone. Paul is the director of the Civic Leaders Center at the School of Public and Environmental Affairs at IU. And Andrew Downs is director of the Mike Downs Center for Indiana Politics at IPFW. And also in the studio are Tim Helwig and... Margie Hershey, both from political science at Indiana University. So we're going to continue to talk about the election. If you have a, a comment, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, one 285 outside of the Bloomington area, or you can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition or follow us on Twitter at noon edition. Stan, thanks for calling. Uh, what's on your mind today? Hi. Uh, listening to your conversation, and I have to admit, I started to kind of seize with frustration because the one thing that's been really consistent in this election is that the funding class has completely missed the point. And you all are hitting the same themes that most of the pundits are hitting and completely missing the things that I think a lot of average people are seeing, which is that if you look at the campaign that really surprised people this year, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, they had themes in common, which is the capture of our uh, leadership class and kind of the corruption of our government. And if you want to look at where the surprises were, you know, buys collapse, what were the mailers that were going out about him constantly? They were all about his corruption, all about how he jumped straight from his Senate job right into lobbying and how he's all tied up with big money. And that's not something I hear people talking about. And that's a theme that was, you know, consistent through the election. The other thing is, when you look at the actual raw numbers of turnout, Republicans didn't have particularly good turnout. They had roughly the same as when McCain ran. And last I looked, the votes were still trickling in, but lower than when Romney ran. Where the missing votes, where the missing turnout was, with 10 million less voters came out for the Democrats than came out in 2008 for Obama. 7 million less than came out for Obama in 2012. The Democratic voters didn't come out because they were alienated. The, the Clinton wing of the party completely alienated the Sanders wing of the party and a lot of the millennial generation. And it, as somebody who's honestly kind of terrified by Trump, but understands the thinking of a lot of the voters who put him in place, it's really frustrating to hear, you know, the people who are supposed to be kind of leading us and analyzing things for us miss the point that I hear people actually talking about on the ground. And just wanted to ingest that into the conversation. Stan, thanks a lot for the call. And I, I you know, I, I think Stan's got a really good point. And I've read a lot of columns since the election came out. We just hadn't gotten to the point yet that the media and the pundits, in a lot of ways, did miss the point, which was it wasn't about Donald Trump. It was about the anger of the American people and the anger at a variety of issues going on. So, um, you guys want to react to Stan? What? Well, even with all that, Hillary still wins the popular vote. 
So, I mean, the, the issue gets down to what, you know, you've got to look state by state. And, and I agree, people are angry, and that, that, that's what they're doing. But it, it's we're, we're still waiting for, for, for more information, too. If people were angry, that, that that's why we had a Trump wave. By was, was, was vulnerable in these things. But Glenda Ritz lost by a big margin, too. Now, you know, one of those, you know, the, the, the attorney general candidates. We've got a black, uh, an African-American Republican attorney general who apparently set up the record for the most votes ever in the state by a Republican. Um, you know, it's it's the, the, the Trump wave is the crucial defining factor here, not the individual candidates, not the campaigns they, they ran. And the Trump factor is people are angry and they're angry about uh, economic change, social change and you know, they, they, they want to mix it up and see if it gets better. Mm-hmm. I think, I think you know, Stan is ex- exactly right. And I think for for those of us who purport to be experts on these things, we're a little per- perplexed. Because in the one, a couple of things, you know, that should be sort of leading bellwethers is that, uh, well, maybe it should be, should be rational for Hillary to um, try to stand on President Obama's, you know, successes. Here we have, I think I last saw that he has higher approval ratings than Reagan did. Um, and look what happened if we, but we would make a mistake to analyze this election as if it were 1988, right? Um, when George Bush came in as kind of a consolidating uh, figure, Hillary Clinton just could not consolidate sort of the Obama coalition or the Obama voters in a way. So, and also, um, the economy, you know, is at least here locally. I mean, reasonably, by some indicators, doing reasonably well. It's it's but this inequality and this discrepancy and haves and have-nots growing divide that I think is is making this as I, as people keep saying this was a change election. Even though if you look back on history, it looks sort of more like maybe it should have been a uh, continuation election. But we got it wrong in terms of those of us who try to try to reason from past American politics experiences into this election. Let me suggest, with respect to Stan, um, it's clear that there's a lot of anger. There has been a lot of anger in American politics for really quite a long time. The fundamental force in politics is how you define uh, what it is that's going on. And so there are a lot of people who are defining that anger in different ways. Some people are saying, well, this is really anger against illegal immigration and and, um, people who are uppity and undeserving. Other people are saying this is really anger about the state of the economy, which, as Tim says, in some ways is improving. Some people are saying this is anger about um, various kinds of character defects in the two major candidates. I had a student in in my environmental policy class yesterday raise her hand and say, so don't you think that if the Democratic Party had nominated Bernie Sanders, that he would have beaten Donald Trump on Tuesday? No, I don't, actually. Um, I think one of the things that happened was that uh, Mr. Sanders, again, with all due respect, who is a very accomplished person, got a great deal of benefit from the fact that the oxygen in the media room was all taken up by Donald Trump. Um, Mr. Sanders wasn't really scrutinized very heavily. And I think um, if you want to suggest that the majority of the American public who turned out to vote would have supported somebody who up until two years ago registered as a socialist, um, I think that you really do need to think a little bit about the nature of the public that you're describing. Uh, Okay, I have two two things I want to do to follow up with this. Paul, is that you? You want to go ahead and? Uh, it was Andy. I'm sorry, yeah, Andy, go ahead. Sure. A couple of quick things. First of all, uh, like Marjorie, I had a student ask that same question, and I said, "Well, that would be a fun, that would be a fun statistical model to run." And that's when I realized no one was paying attention any longer because I said "fun and statistical model" in the same sentence. <laughs> <laughs> That'll uh, do it. <laughs> now, having said that, uh, I do want to point out to uh, to everyone that. We have, in our conversation so far, actually talked about the low voter turnout on the D side. We also talked about Evan Bayh being characterized as the insider and people not liking that. So it's not that we haven't talked about the things. I think we did not use the language he wanted to hear us using. But we did bring up a couple of these issues as as contributing factors. 
when you have an election this close, I think you can pick a whole lot of factors and say mm-hmm. that is the one reason or that's the one reason or that's the one reason. But in the end, we all know that it's a combination of reasons. Well, okay, so here, here are my two follow-ups. One, let's flip that uh, Bernie Sanders thing and say if Donald Trump wasn't the Republican nominee and it had been John Kasich or Jeb Bush, somebody who was more of a mainstream Republican, how do you think the election would have looked? Would that have made a difference, Margie? I think probably the models would have favored the Republican, mm-hmm. um, and there were some models that favored the Republican this time. Um, I think it's important what Mike is saying about the so-called failure of the polls. Um, the polls predicted, on average, that Mrs. Clinton would win the popular vote by somewhere between 2 and 3 percent. She won the popular vote by 0.2 percent. That's not very far off. They're still counting votes, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In fact, it looks as though she'll pick up votes from here. But um, I think that the likelihood is that somebody uh, that the Trump's uh, advantages and his disadvantages probably canceled one another out. Um, he had tremendous advantages in terms of coverage. Um, he is a showman. He did a terrific job of getting media attention and of um, focusing anger on a whole series of different things, not just one thing. Um, but the time for a change factor tends to be pretty powerful after one party has controlled the White House for two terms. The, the other oh, one thing. This is, this is Paul. Just to, sure. You know, one thing we haven't talked about uh, that, and, and maybe we need more information yet, is, is the voter suppression issue. Marjorie, Marjorie mentioned earlier about how 60 years ago, uh, you know, it was, you might get 10 percent black turnouts just because of the suppression efforts in the South. This is the first election we've had where the uh, the oversight from the Voting Rights Act uh, wasn't in place, and uh, you know that could have made a difference theoretically in states like uh, uh, North Carolina and in other states, and. And, you know, when you look at all these swing states, I think almost every one of them has a Republican governor um, who is in charge or has some influence on on these sort of vote suppression or, or opening the vote up efforts. Read something where the number of people turned away in Wisconsin, for example, was uh, was uh, many times greater than the margin of, of loss. So, you know, one of the things we have to talk about here is, you know, are we really running fair elections still? And uh, you know, the Supreme Court seemed to think, uh, you know, just because the, lead, the Congress says it's uh, it, it's still applicable, they that it's not 1965 anymore, and throughout the, that part of the Voting Rights Act. So I'm wondering about Mike Pence as VP, and if if there's a way to talk about it, not just be entirely speculative, but he spent 12 years in Congress, and sort of what issues was he a champion of, and how how might that maybe define what he picks up and gets to focus on as as vice president. Paul, you might know this best. You... <laughs> Go ahead. Paul, do you, what do you think? Oh, I was just going to say, it's, uh, I mean, uh, his main value, I think, for, the pre- for, uh, for President-elect Trump is going to be the fact that he has been a governor, the fact that he has been in leadership in Congress. He's going to be uh, Donald Trump's outreach uh, to the state houses and to Congress. But it's still going to be the agenda that, um, that Donald Trump sets or at least signs on to. Um, but that, that's a back and forth. Uh, you know, the Paul Ryan and the and, and the governors can also use Mike Pence to to get their priorities on Donald Trump's uh, desk and, and in front of it. So, I, I think he's going to be an important part of the administration uh, because of his background. Uh, to the, I'm not sure he's going to be setting policy too much or, or prioritizing things, but because he'll be the conduit uh, back from Congress and the states, that's going to give him a lot of power. Yeah, I wonder if he'll get a larger than average sort of set of policies underneath his, you know, purview than you might see from a typical <laughs> vice president. Uh, you know, at least that's what there's some some talk that uh, Donald Trump will there be a lot of policies where he probably won't care too much to get down in the weeds on. Um, Pence doesn't have the, as strong a reputation as being a policy wonk as some people, but. Uh, it doesn't take much to beat Donald Trump on that ground. So, I think Mr. Trump's stands on a variety of issues have been, uh, to put it mildly, variable. And um, that means that we could see a number of changes between what he said in the campaign and what he's going to say as president. Uh, I think we all remember the reports, at least, that uh, one of his sons contacted John Kasich in Ohio just before the end of the primaries. 
and said, look, if you will endorse Mr. Trump, you will become the vice president and uh, you will have authority over economic policy and foreign policy. And Kasich said, sort of what's left for Mr. Trump to do. And uh, the Trump son's response was, he'll make America great again. Mm -hmm. Uh, That suggests to me that we're not going to see a president who is extremely in the in the high grass here. And Mm -hmm. that, as um, as I think Paul rightly says, um, the influence for Pence is not guaranteed. Um, Anything that happens between the White House and Congress is a matter of negotiation. And the big question for me is what's going to take the top place on that agenda? Is it going to be social conservatism or is it going to be economic conservatism? It's certainly going to be both, but which is going to be pushed farther and faster? Bathroom bills or uh, cutting the uh, enforcement um, opportunities for the Environmental Protection Agency? All right. Our phone numbers again are 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. Or you can join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. We have Terry on the line. Terry's from Bedford. Go ahead, Terry. Yes. uh, My question is uh, on the electoral vote in December 19th. It's basically an evaluation of uh, the um, qualifications of an elected official, namely, in this case, uh, Donald Trump. And I was wondering if that's still going to be enforced and acted upon uh, December the 19th, and uh, how that could play out in the tally of the electoral votes uh, on uh, the win on Donald Trump. Also, I have a question about uh, what's your opinions on how this uh, Republican Congress and Senate and a Republican president will play out with Social Security. So, in essence, are you asking, could the Electoral College do something other than elect Trump? Yes. In other words, could the Electoral College uh, overturn the uh, Trump victory here. Margie? The answer is yes and no, it won't. Um, First of all, the Electoral College might have functioned in this way early in the history of the Republic because the purpose of the Electoral College was to send a group of wise men to their state capitals to uh, do exactly what the caller suggests and consider the qualifications of the candidate and choose the one they felt was the most qualified. This has not been the case for quite a long time. There is no law in uh, almost any state that I'm aware of that requires electors to vote according to the majority or the plurality vote um, in the popular vote in their state. And there are probably very few uh, legal sanctions of any kind for bucking that. On the other hand, the people who are chosen as electors are typically chosen, first of all, for their loyalty to the party over time, and second, they are typically approved by the particular candidate whom they are going to vote in favor of. So we do see occasional faithless electors, and apparently we will see one this year because there is an elector, a Democratic elector from Washington State who has stated in advance that he will not vote for Hillary Clinton. Um, But... Uh, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't hold your breath. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. The social uh, security. The social security question. Social, mm-hmm. Yes. Well, for my, I think the other other people can weigh in, but I think the more, I think we'll see more changes in in maybe uh, Medicare, um, mm-hmm. food stamps, uh, low sort of minimal safety net kind of protections. Affordable uh, comes, Care Act. Affordable certainly. Care Act as well, and and social security will not be on the forefront of the reforms uh, relative to those those other things. The the one entity would be... uh, Go ahead, I'm sorry. This is Paul Hilke. I was just going to say, the Republicans for years and at all levels have campaigned on, quote, fixing a lot of these things. Uh, but they, you know, now they've got the chance to because they can control all three. There's nobody else to point the blame to. So if, uh, you know, over the next two years, if they 
if they don't fix what they see as problems in social, social Security or the Affordable Care Act or other things, then I think the voters might finally realize that, uh, you know, they were hearing promises and, and, and aren't going to get results either. But from a positive side, there might be a chance finally to get a deal done that is necessary to uh, – uh, to ensure some of the long-time health of Social Security and some other things. I mean, that one can hope that, uh, you know, that the, some of the serious thinkers in the Republican Party and uh, Paul Ryan and others might come up with a plan that, that long-range uh, could make a positive difference. Uh, it's going to be controversial, certainly. It, it's gonna, there's going to be winners and losers in it. But uh, the idea that uh, there's just going to be gridlock continuing and we don't get anything done, I, I think the gridlock's gone, and some people are going to like it, and some people are going to hate it, but... Uh, will be seeing some motion. We probably should, given that uh, one of the characteristics of unified one-party government is that we have had pretty rapid, unusually historically rapid changes in party control in recent years. The Senate has had different party majorities seven times since 1980. That's really unprecedented historically, at least in the last century and a half. When that happens as a result, whichever party takes control at a given period of time knows that it probably can guarantee only two years of control, and that as a result, it had better get its wish list put through ASAP before the other party gets a chance to come back. I don't think that uh, cutting Social Security or making it voluntary is very high on the Republican agenda. I mean, I think there's some realism there about what public opinion is about Social Security. But there will be a lot of change in this Congress. Andy, you have a quick quick reaction? I, I, I agree with what folks have been saying. Okay. Social Security is not going to make the top of the list. Things like immigration and uh, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, I think those those have to be, they have to, there has to be an attempt to address those first since they were so prominently discussed and Marjorie's right that uh, on a unified government, you usually have a better chance of getting stuff done, but that window closes very, very quickly. And finally, now we're not arguing about trying to get a piece of the pie. Now we're going to see folks arguing about getting a bigger piece of the pie. That's the difference between divided government and unified government. Everyone believes now that they get a piece of the pie, in fact, a very big piece of the pie. The Republicans will just be fighting among themselves in some respects to figure out which things take precedent. And they, they, they do not agree on every issue. So there will be some things that don't get done, and that will frustrate tremendously uh, some folks who think that with unified control they're going to get everything they want. Okay, let's go, yeah. let's go to uh, – we have another caller on the phone. So let's go to Roger from Bloomington. Roger? Uh, yes, I, I wanted to call to your attention an article in Bloomberg Business Week for uh, October 31st uh, on – digital marketing operation of the Trump campaign, and I think it documents that, in their own words, um, voter suppression. It says, we have three major, this is a direct quote, we have three major voter suppression operations underway, and part of that was targeting uh, black uh, African-American radio stations and using Facebook and saying, the only people we want to see it, see it. And I think that that really accounts. It's a new low in voter suppression, a new sophistication in voter suppression, and I think that accounts for uh, really the whole margin by which true, uh, Trump won. It, for me, one of the interesting that? things about campaigns in the last, let's say, eight years is the unbelievable targeting that can happen now yeah. and how long something actually can kind of stay under the radar until people find out about it. Back in the 90s when, you know, so much stuff was on television, that was the big way to advertise. We knew about stuff almost immediately. Now, because of, as, as the caller's pointing out, the way you can micro-target with social media and, and other forms of communication, it takes a long time to find out about some stuff, and those things can spread very, very quickly and very broadly before you find them. Yeah, if you excuse me, one of the things that said one of these campaigns didn't start until October 24th, so that's when a surge by Trump also began. Um, Andy, could you ex- expand on that just a little bit? Give me, give me an example of something that you would be talking about. Back, uh, if we go back, say, 12 years, there would have been, you know, for example, pieces of direct mail that would have shown up at someone's house, and they may have gone unnoticed. Uh, they might have gone unshared with other people. But more than likely, just because address matches don't work perfectly, 
somebody in your campaign would have gotten a copy of that piece of direct mail, and so you would have known about it, and you could have tried to counter it or not, as the case may be. But with electronic stuff, um, we're just we're simply much much better at identifying and communicating directly to people, whether that is through uh, direct uh, uh, network. So whoever do you have on your Facebook? Uh, you know who are your friends on Facebook? Uh, a lot of folks unfriend the people who have different points of view, so you can speak only to your friends as opposed to something more broadly. Uh, th- that sort of stuff and and mixing marketing data with voter registration data, with other data sources that you collect yourself as a campaign, really allows you to target the message in a, in a much more refined and, in some respects, exciting way and also in a very um, less than exciting way if used nefariously. Okay. If I could say we've got two minutes left, so Margie, uh, can you give us 30 seconds? Any last thoughts for any of you? But you've only got about 30 seconds each. Anything we didn't get to. <laughs> Let me, two quick thoughts. One is that Mike is absolutely right. Anybody listening to this, you should know that both the Republican and Democratic parties have at least 150 pieces of information about you in a voter data bank at the national level and can contact you. Let me just briefly conclude. Um, We need to protect the people who are at risk right now. Stand up. Don't accept bullying. Um, Volunteer. Mm -hmm. Tim? Just... Oh, sorry, real quickly, uh, we haven't had a chance to talk much about, about the vote itself and how people decided how to vote for We did a little bit at the beginning, but I just think as somebody who studies voting behavior, it's just uh, flabbergasted me that um, the, 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 the selective way that people evaluate candidates, they don't look at the, it seems that so much was discounted in terms, especially in thinking of Trump's um, uh, attributes uh, when it came to the election. It's just, it's really shocking to me. Um, that it really, we are a nation of more sort of single issue, single minded voters, and um, politicians have to kind of understand that if they want to win elections. All right, very quickly. Paul, like 10 seconds. Um, <laughs> basically, as, as, uh, as Hillary Clinton said, uh, this isn't just about a person, isn't just about Election Day. You People have to be active all the time. And if people are concerned or scared or afraid, now's the time to get active. Get active locally, get active in campaigns. If you're going to protest, you know, remember to vote first, but protest, keep your eye on things, and do it uh, do it in the way to, to, to get positive change going forward. And, Speak up. And Andy Downs, last, last the word. System, the system works incredibly slowly, which means it's hard to screw it up and it's hard to fix it uh, in a quick fashion. So it is a marathon, and as, as everyone has been saying, everyone needs to be doing their part and paying attention between the elections, not just at election time. All right. Thank you. Andy Downs, Margie Hershey, Paul Helmke, and Tim Helwig for producer Sophia Salaby, engineer Mike Pashkash, Sarah Whitmire, and I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times, A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.